It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I had not realized until his passing how incredibly popular Meatloaf was. I mean, 100 million albums appearing in a bunch of movies, including Wayne's World, uh, popping up on the Today Show and other TV appearances. I mean, the tributes are just pouring in. Obviously, his heyday was the 70s, but he then reinvented his career. And wow, this guy was really beloved. I hadn't really been on my radar that much. That's because a lot of my radar is taken up with the Beatles. And as we ease into the weekend, I wanted to just share an observation with you about the Beatles. It does not surprise you at all uh, for me to say that the Beatles were probably the most photographed musicians of all times, or even just the most uh, photographed, among the most photographed famous people of all times. I get fed a lot of this stuff on Facebook because I click on it all the time. And it's kind of amazing to look back, you know, from the mop top days until uh, much later, how much time they devoted to these photo shoots. I'm not just talking about, you know, pictures of them performing on stage or with Ed Sullivan, you name it. Um, I mean, a lot of these early photos were really hokey. They would pose anything anybody wanted them to do. Now that I have a more sophisticated journalistic understanding, I know that, you know, this doesn't take five minutes. You've got to have the wardrobe right. And, you know, either they would uh, all be uh, appearing in those collarless suits. Sometimes they would all be smiling. Sometimes they would all be serious. Sometimes only one would be smiling. They'd be kneeling down so John, Paul, George, Ringo could all get into the picture. I saw one where they're all wearing, wearing sailor hats. Others where they're all just having tea. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And then, uh, you know, some of this is backstage or in hotels. Uh, I guess there were always somebody around. I mean, some of these are obviously staged uh, publicity shoots, but sometimes maybe just the... Their, their staff or their road team would be taking these pictures. Um, and in later years, just the incredible variety, you know, um, one would be wearing a suit. Another would be wearing a walrus outfit. Another one would be just in a T-shirt or have an ascot. And one would have a French beret on. And the contrast of colors, it was no accident. I mean, some of these pictures are really, really good and intriguing. Some of them, I say, are very, very staged. And then in later years, of course, you've got them posing in the Sgt. Pepper outfits and the incredibly flamboyant uh, Magical Mystery Tour um, taping stuff from that era, or wearing Indian garb with the Maharishi. I mean, it's just amazing, in addition to the musical legacy, what a photographic legacy this was, and how the boys, you know, were willing, even their later years, and sometimes, you know, John would just appear to be kind of staring into outer space or be serene while the others were yucking it up, um, how much time they devoted to, to these images that have lasted, you know, more than half a century. Uh, in other news, I, I just can't get that, that excited about this flap about M&Ms. Uh, you know, the M&M characters, the little animated characters, they're getting a remake and they have different shoes now and it's more diverse and they're going to have more clearly defined personalities. I mean, who really cares? Why is this, you know, it'd be one thing if they changed the candy, right? Oh, suddenly there's a new flavor or, you know, uh, if anything, it was sort of like the new Coke. But the cartoon characters, I don't know. <laughs> Just don't watch it. Um, Naomi Osaka, trying to make a big comeback in a Grand Slam event, lost yesterday in the Australian Open. You remember the Australian Open. It was all that whole flap about Novak Djokovic. Um, she lost to 
an unseated American player. I mean, somebody wasn't even in the, you know, the top 50 or however they do it. Uh, it was a hard-fought match, three sets uh, with a tiebreaker. And she came out and said, look, I did the best I could. I guess mentally her game just wasn't there. But you do sort of wonder, given all the what she did with pulling out of last year's French Open and the depression and all that, you know, whether she can get her game, both physically and mentally, back to the high level that it was when she knocked off Serena in the U.S. Open and in those glory years. Uh, Mitch McConnell taking a lot of flack for uh, choice of words. And this is what it involved. It involved the argument about voting rights and the Democratic legislation that failed. And a reporter asked the Senate minority leader, well, what about concerns among voters of color? And here's what McConnell said. The concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, black American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. So people are just going absolutely haywire. How dare he say black Americans and then Americans as if black Americans are not fully Americans. And what his spokesman said, and what I think is pretty obvious, is that he just misspoke. He meant to say black Americans and other Americans, not just Americans. And this is like, you know, when politicians go to the fainting couches, I cannot believe that majority, the minority leader would be so callous. And both parties do this. You know, Joe Biden mangles his words. The Republicans, you know, fear for the future of the republic. And Mitch McConnell leaves out a word. You know, when you talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, you're going to say some things that are wrong. Trust me, I know about this. If you listen to this podcast long enough, you'll find some things as well. So anyways, a little bit of a political one-day flap about that. What's not a one-day flap, what's serious, is story number one. And that is, you know, I talked at great length about the great length of the Joe Biden news conference on Wednesday and whether or not it was such a bright idea for him to go nearly two hours. But the thing is, you could have a six-hour news conference. Um, If you make one mistake, particularly a serious mistake, that will define it. That will be the thing that everybody remembers. I have a column about this today because for Biden, it's clearly Ukraine. And it's kind of stunning to me what a bad mistake the president of the United States made uh, in this area. And so, you know, if you haven't been following this that closely, uh, he was asked a couple of questions, two or three questions about Ukraine. And obviously the U.S. is involved in a major diplomatic effort to prevent any Russian invasion of Ukraine or part of Ukraine. In fact, Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, just met with his counterpart today, uh, Sergei Lavrov, in which they said, uh, well, you know, the, the Russian side said it's expecting some written U.S. responses to its demands. So Putin is trying to leverage this, whether he invades or not. I don't really know. But when the president of the United States was asked about this by David Sanger of The New York Times and other reporters, He said, well, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. And he made this prediction, Biden saying, my guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And then he talked about how NATO wasn't totally on the same page about what to do in response. Well, this was such a colossal mistake that, as you may know, half an hour later, Jen Psaki's out with a statement, know what the president really meant to say. And then the next day, it would be yesterday, President Biden himself, you know, he's, he's at an infrastructure task force meeting, and he makes sure he's going to clean up the remarks. And said, so, no, 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 if Russia does anything, even any kind of incursion, we will respond with massive sanctions, full force and all that. 
But then, you know, uh, as he was leaving some meeting, I don't know if it was that event or another one, Fox's Jackie Heinrich shouted out a question of, you know, uh, are you encouraging Putin? And he said, that's a stupid question, and he walked away. I don't think that's Biden at his best when he attacks the reporters. It's just, it's just not a good look. Um, and so, you know, what you had with the president of the United States predicting a Russian invasion that we might not respond to if it was only involved like one region was, you know, classic cleanup on aisle two. Um, and all of the efforts here. Oh, so what Biden said yesterday, if any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. So here's how the Washington Post, you know, I didn't, on the New York Times homepage, I didn't see a big piece about this. I mean, obviously it was covered at the time, but this has dominated. This reminds me of when Donald Trump met with Putin in Helsinki and appeared to side with the Russian autocrat against our own U.S. intelligence services when it came to the question of Russian interference in the 2016 campaign. I mean, the press talked about that for weeks, months, even years. And that's the thing about it. It doesn't matter how long you talk. If you make one serious blunder, then that's the news. So Washington Post says, look, uh, what, what Biden was facing yesterday, including a highly unusual rebuke from the president of Ukraine, of course, sharp criticism from Republican lawmakers, uh, was after he appeared to downplay a high, hypothetical minor incursion. The administration was hastily thrown into cleanup mode, reassuring allies and foes that the U.S. would view any crossing by Russian troops into Ukraine as unacceptable aggression. I, in fact, I was watching Fox. Uh, Jen Psaki was being interviewed by Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino in America's Newsroom. And in real time, the producer must have told uh, Hemmer that President Zelensky of Ukraine had just tweeted or put out a statement saying, we want to remind the great powers that there are no minor incursions and small nations, just as there are no minor casualties and little grief from the loss of loved ones. I say this as president of a great power. Uh, Republican Senator Ben Sass said the president's press conference was a train wreck. Uh, President Biden basically gave Putin a green light to invade Ukraine by yammering about the supposed insignificance of a minor incursion. Um, I don't. I think the green light goes a little far, but nevertheless, it's fair political criticism. And then, you know, the Post takes a step back and says, look, in the run-up to the 2008 presidential election, that was Biden's second run for the White House, Biden became known on the national stage for public gaffes, including when he described his future boss, Barack Obama, as the first mainstream African-American who's articulate and bright and clean. That was among the dumbest things that any politician has ever said. Somehow he got picked as VP anyway. Over his time as vice president, says the Washington Post, Biden's tendency to put his foot in his mouth was often dismissed as an endearing characteristic, part of a broader image he cultivated as the sometimes impolitic but always authentic Uncle Joe. But the Ukraine comments demonstrated the much higher stakes when a commander-in-chief uses unclear language during a global crisis. Biden himself had criticized President Trump, saying the words of a president matter. Uh, U.S. officials now are alarmed about the possibility of a large-scale invasion by Russian forces, and who knows how that will play out. But Biden didn't do himself any good. And, um, you know, it's particularly striking because Joe Biden, you know, his service on the Foreign Relations Committee over the years, his eight years as vice president, he knows Putin, he knows most of these world leaders, 
I mean, he's always projected, you know, I'm comfortable on the world stage. And then to make this kind of rookie mistake uh, is really a huge blunder with implications far beyond, you know, today or tomorrow or next week. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. You know, now that Biden has utterly failed to get any of the $2 trillion Build Back Better plan, remember this involves everything from enhancing Medicare to child tax credit to climate change to pre-kindergarten. I mean, it's a real grab bag of liberal priorities. So the New York Times has an interesting piece um, comparing what Biden has tried and failed to do with FDR, because you'll remember there was all that press hype, and Biden even talked about it, and he, um, you know, the, he, he was coming into a national emergency the way that Franklin Delano Roosevelt did when he took office in March of 1933. But what people sometimes now forget when we use the shorthand, FDR, New Deal, is that Franklin Roosevelt didn't sort of come into office and say, hey, you know what, I'd really like to have a create a bunch of new government agencies and uh, pass a bunch of liberal laws because uh, that's just the kind of guy I am. He was elected because Herbert Hoover had failed to deal with the Great Depression. And, you know, untold number of Americans were out of work, people were selling pencils on the street. It was a real time of hardship and suffering for the country. You know, the stock market had crashed in 1929 and all of that. So that is part of the difference. I mean, the similarity is both came in. For Biden, it was the pandemic, uh, which had caused the lockdowns and and had badly wounded the economy. But, says the Times, rather than following the FDR playbook and focusing relentlessly on the crises facing Americans, Biden shifted away, and this was just, I think, the signature mistake here, from the pandemic and the economy to produce, uh, excuse me, to pursue long-standing Democratic goals, universal pre-K, climate change, voting rights, child tax credit. Only 33% of voters in a recent CBS YouGov poll say the president is focused on issues that they care about a lot. And that's always a mistake for any president. When you've got your own sort of ideological agenda and what voters care about are other things. A reminder, and the other things can be summarized in the four famous words of James Carville during Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, the Times says the decision to prioritize, prioritize the goals of his party's activist base, meaning the left-wingers, the progressives, the Bernies, the AOCs, over the issues prioritized by voters is more reminiscent of the last half century of politically unsuccessful Democratic presidents than of Roosevelt. Now, this time story goes on to say, give me a second and I'll tell you what it says. Um, so here's Biden trying to match, or at least aspiring to match Roosevelt's legacy, while forgetting, the time's not pulling any punches here, the most basic high school history class lesson about the root of the New Deal's political appeal. It was designed to meet the challenges of the moment. You know, liberals kind of cherish the New Deal for expanding the role of government permanently, as it turned out. But the core of its political success, it was dealing with the immediate crisis facing the people of America. The banks had been shut down. The farms were failing. Mass unemployment. And it goes on to remind us, the New Deal was not always successful. Some of the individual proposals and provisions were not popular. But Roosevelt fixed the banking crisis. And by creating jobs, a lot of them, you know, just plain old government jobs, 
he restored a sense of hope and optimism. Now, by contrast with Biden's first year, which has just come to a close, more than half of voters in that same CBS poll say Biden is not focused enough on the economy or inflation. Now, I do have to add, fixing the economy uh, and particularly combating inflation, which is now running about 7%, not that easy. You know, the president doesn't have all that many tools that he can use. And ironically, there's a kind of a mixed bag on the economy in that, you know, uh, unemployment was over 6% when Biden took office. It's now 3.9%. The stock market, despite giving back some recent gains, you know, grew greatly. So there are a lot of bright spots, but there are also a lot of um, people struggling, clearly, and parents struggling because some of their schools are closed or the virtual learning thing. I know it's not most schools, uh, but, you know, the pandemic has really taken its toll. And then you get into the vaccinations and not enough tests, you know. So, I mean, if Joe Biden had only done two things, worked on the pandemic and tried to boost the economy, I think his political standing would be very different now. I don't think the public, you know, he ran as a as kind of a pragmatic Democratic moderate. I don't think the public really wanted him to do a whole laundry list of things. I think they would have been happy if he kind of turned the temperature down, wasn't Donald Trump, uh, tried to end some of the divisiveness. And in this, um, one more note from this poll, uh, only 24% of voters said their opinion of Biden would improve if he passed the Build Back Better Act. In other words, look, you could go through the list. Child tax credit has helped with child poverty. Uh, enhancing Medicare, you know, I'm sure seniors would love that. Pre-kindergarten, great goal. Uh, more money for community colleges, great goal. But somehow you have to pay for all this. And in order to pay for it, you got to raise taxes. And Biden said he during the campaign to raise taxes. But guess what? Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, they don't want to raise taxes. They don't want to spend $2 trillion. Uh, they don't uh, want to change the filibuster. And so... Biden should, as a veteran legislator himself, should have realized what he could get and what he couldn't get. And now they're talking about, of course, there's no uh, negotiations going on. Well, we're going to pass chunks. Nancy Pelosi said we're going to pass chunks of of the bill. Look, if they passed one chunk, one major chunk, let's just say it was climate change, um, that would be, you know, a major accomplishment. I mean, it's just, Biden just got too ambitious and too out of touch with what the political system could bear and what Americans really wanted. And so, you know, he ended up chasing a lot of goals that were not top of mind, were not kitchen table issues. They were not the stuff people are sitting around talking about, uh, COVID and inflation and supply chain shortages and all of that. He just overreached. It's, it's not a pretty word, but that's what he did. And whether he can come back in year two, uh, we shall have to see. Uh, Let's see. Story number three, Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump. Now, I don't know. Maybe this whole thing about the Florida governor and former president is a lot of media hype. After all, 2024 is a long way away. But Rich Lowry has an interesting column in National Review um, talking about not so much the horse race aspect of it, but you know what DeSantis represents, what Trump represents, and what it says about the future of the GOP. So in Lowry's view, it was only a matter of time before DeSantis's rising star ran into the unmovable object of Donald Trump. And there's been a bunch of news stories, so mostly this is press-generated. 
And, and Lowry says the, the level of the class shouldn't be exaggerated. And it's insanely early, to use his phrase. But the Trump-DeSantis storyline is inherently alluring because each man represents a different future for the Republican Party. Some version, says National Review, of what DeSantis represents has the greatest odds of coaxing the party away from Trump and forging a new political synthesis that bears the unmistakable stamp of Trump while jettisoning his flaws. In other words, Ron DeSantis would be Trumpism without the grievance-driven politics and the uh, insult-driven personality. Um, And now look, the GOP is never going to just sort of wake up one day and say, you know what, it was a mistake to ever embrace Donald Trump, and now we want to be the party of Adam Kinzinger. (laughs) That's not happening. The challenge to Trump, in Rich Lowry's view, has to come from the Trump wing, from the right. And so DeSantis, you know, he's a pretty orthodox conservative in some ways. He's also a lightning rod for criticism from the left. That's a good thing if you're running for a Republican nomination. Uh, He mixes it up with the media a lot. I've talked about some of that. And so um, this would remove what Lowry at least sees as some of Trump's flaws. Because, you know, if Trump runs again, what will people say? Well, uh, he elevated Anthony Fauci early in the pandemic and listened to his vice for too long. This would be the, the case against Trump, I guess. Uh, that he rattled China's cage but didn't make fundamental changes to the relationship and was too complimentary of Xi Jinping. And then he lost to Joe Biden, a, this is Lowry's words, desperately flawed candidate who made it to the White House only because Trump made himself so unpopular. Now, the close here, would DeSantis be audacious enough to run against Trump? The case against waiting is that it's unlikely the governor can maintain his exalted status in the party until 2028. I still think if Trump runs, DeSantis doesn't, but maybe Trump doesn't run. We'll see. Uh, Trump called into Hannity last night, and he said, oh, you know, this is all fake news. Ron DeSantis is a good friend of mine. I helped him get elected governor. That's what he's saying publicly. Speaking of Sean Hannity, the January uh, 6th committee in the House uh, put out uh, some additional texts uh, by Sean. The earlier ones, you know, had talked about January 6th, uh, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, Brian Kilmeade, all urging Mark Meadows to get Trump to do something, speak out, to get his supporters to leave the Capitol and stop the violence. Well, this um, text was from Hannity to then Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany, now with Fox's Outnumbered, uh, I believe on January 7th, so right after, and this is what um, Sean Hannity wrote. No more stolen election talk. Yes, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real, and many people will quit. Well, Hannity was right about that. A number of high-profile people quit the administration after January 6th, including Stephanie Grisham and others. Key now, no more crazy people. And McEnany said, yes, 100%. In other words, keep Trump away from the people. You can use your imagination as to who the crazy people might have been. So this was, I guess, in his role as an informal advisor, sending uh, his thoughts to the White House press secretary on what Trump needed to do to repair the obvious damage. And he acknowledged the damage by saying there would be a move to impeachment, which, of course, there was. The 25th Amendment thing didn't go anywhere. And so that's news. Also news in this area, uh, Atlanta area prosecutor is asking for a special grand jury. This is the Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, uh, to look into uh, potential criminal charges against former President Trump for trying to pressure Georgia election officials. 
Uh, you'll remember this is the case where Trump himself, and then it was recorded, called the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and said, if you can just find 11,000 votes to throw out Joe Biden's win. Well, uh, under a certain theory of the case, uh, this could be fraud. A special grand jury sounds pretty serious. Trump said yesterday, I didn't say anything wrong in that call. In fact, he said it was a perfect call, perfect phone call. That's the same thing he said about his phone call with Zelensky uh, when he was trying to get uh, Ukraine to release derogatory information on uh, then-future candidate Joe Biden. Also, that was a perfect phone call. That led to the first impeachment. Uh, just interesting phraseology there. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number four. Piece in the Atlantic by a uh, contributor to Scientific American and sometimes the New York Times, Melinda Moyer, about parents and the pandemic. For two years, we've been spending each and every day na- na- navigating an ever-changing virus. Uh, now it's reached fever pitch, he said, because of Omicron. How do we send our kids back to school when no one can find COVID tests and so many students and teachers are out sick? How do we keep our kids home from... Be- home from school when we're also expected to be back at work. How can we be good parents when we are also required to be employees, teachers, nurses, playmates, chefs, therapists, and spouses? As I write this sentence, Netflix is babysitting my daughter, who is homesick with a fever and running nose that might be COVID. Should I feel guilty that I'm not attending to her every need? Or is guilt now a luxury parents cannot afford? This is such a accord with me because I've heard so many parents have some version of this conversation. She goes on, parents were defeated long before Omicron. Now we've reached a stage of the pandemic where finding the right words to describe our lot is simply an exercise in absurdity. We are broken. We have nothing left in us but screams of anger and pain. Even if we're somehow physically muddling our way through the pandemonium, our mental health is taking a serious hit. She goes on to say, look, my kids became fully vaccinated in late December. Just as Omicron was starting its surge through the U.S., they were so excited. Man, can I relate to this. To have some wave of normalcy, to weave some normalcy back into their lives. Go to restaurants, have uh, friends over, sleepovers, you know, all the things that my husband and I had previously told them that were not worth the risk of infection. We promised them we would do these things once they were vaccinated. And then along comes this variant And at least in many cases, obviously, vaccination doesn't protect you against Omicron, although I have to say it keeps you out of the hospital. It keeps you from dying. Um, The people who are dying now in hospitals are mainly unvaccinated. Not all, because look, a lot of people are are elderly or or sick or pre-existing conditions, and COVID just sort of pushes them over the edge. Anyway, my heart goes out to this woman, and I think she speaks for so many parents. I mean, this has been, we are all, I mean, and this, of course, affects Joe Biden's political fortunes as well, whether he handled it well or poorly. And he acknowledges this. The country is just so tired of this. But especially if you have kids and you have to work and you want to work and your kids, you know, can't do all these things. I mean, it really, the, the mental health impact of this on kids, on parents, on all of us. I think has been really underestimated. There's starting to be some studies uh, now and some experts speaking out about that. Um, and I think it's going to have a long-lasting effect even once this virus finally recedes. I don't want to say fades, but recedes to the point where we can kind of handle it like we do the flu. 
And so I wanted to share that with you because uh, certainly it resonated for me. All right, number five, I'm going to close up here with, uh, before I remind you to watch Media Buzz on Sunday, with a piece in Mediaite that I think is just so totally off the mark. Uh, CNN announced that Wolf Blitzer was going to hold a new show called The Newscast for the upcoming streaming service, CNN+. Plus. Everybody's now got a streaming service, you know, uh, whether it's uh, major networks. I mean, Fox has Fox Nation, you know, because that's where a lot of eyeballs are going as uh, television ratings um, come down, particularly from the high points of the, of the Trump years. So... This mediaite writer says, you know what? Wolf Blitzer has been such a mainstay there. He joined CNN in 1990. You know, all the great things that he did over all the years. And I obviously know Wolf for many, many, many years. A really decent guy. Not uh, the most flamboyant anchor you ever want to see. But, you know, steady. And, you know, covered wars, covered impeachment, covered conventions, and on and on and on. So this writer decides, well, maybe they're actually trying to ease Wolf out and give him a streaming show, and then he gets off CNN. Look, there was a time when Wolf Blitzer not only had like a two-hour show every day, but he hosted the Sunday show. He was doing everything. I mean, that wasn't going to last forever. And then it goes through the ratings. Uh, you know, Wolf's uh, 6 p.m. show, The Situation Room, like all of CNN, is way down. So it's averaging 598,000 daily viewers, I guess, in the latest numbers. That's a distant third behind Brett Barron's special report, 2.5 million daily viewers. And on MSNBC, Ari Melber averaging 1.2 million daily viewers. But you can't go from that to say that just because, uh, you know, he's getting a, a streaming show, it means CNN doesn't want to keep him on the air. Um, and, uh, you know, lots of well-known anchors, correspondents at all of these networks are also getting streaming shows because the networks are trying to leverage their talent to say, hey, you may want to check out this. I mean, look, Chris Wallace is going to have a streaming show on CNN+. Plus. That's the thing that he left Fox for. So here's the statement from CNN Public Relations to media. The very premise of this piece is nonsensical and ill-informed. Equating the launch of a CNN Plus program with the end of a distinguished television career is offensively stupid. Anderson Cooper, Poppy Harlow, Kate Baldwin, Sarah Sidner, and others will host programs on CNN Plus in addition to their CNN linear TV roles. Wolf Flitzer is no different. This is hit job hackery, not educated opinion. Media should be ashamed for publishing this garbage. Now that's what I call standing by your man. Now look, I give media right. Media I, uh, credit for running the statement. But if I'm the writer of the piece and I get a statement like that, I'm going to rethink the premise, okay? Like maybe uh, my sheer speculation here is like way off base. Look, I don't, you know, eventually, like everybody else, uh, you know, finally Wolf Blitzer's career will come to an end. But he's such a part of CNN's identity. So should be ashamed of publishing this garbage. That is CNN PR saying, uh-uh, you're flat wrong, not helping. We love Wolf. Uh, which brings me back to my own television career. And on this Sunday's Media Buzz, 11 Eastern, uh, we will have former White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer, but also former Democratic uh, Governor of Pennsylvania Ed Rendell. Fair and balanced, a lot of other guests as well. We hope you have a chance to watch. Hope you have a good weekend. We'd be very grateful that you subscribe. We'll see you on Monday with more Buzz Media. 
the Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.